Uh, we'll hear argument now in number 931636, uh, Tom Swint versus the Chambers County Commission. Uh, Mr. McDuff. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. On the merits, the question in this case is whether counties in Alabama are liable for the unconstitutional actions of their sheriffs under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. In terms of jurisdiction, which I propose to discuss first, the question is whether the Court of Appeals had the authority by the virtue of what it called discretionary pendant appellate jurisdiction to resolve the county liability issue in the first place on an interlocutory appeal. Let me state at the outset that because we believe the Court of Appeals was wrong on the merits, we would be pleased if its opinion were vacated one way or the other. But of the alternatives, uh, we take the position that the, co- that the case should be resolved on the merits. We agree with our opponents who asked the Eleventh Circuit to address this matter in the first place, that the Court of Appeals had the power to resolve the county liability issue coming as it did in the context of an otherwise valid interlocutory appeal on qualified immunity grounds and with the trial already on hold in the district court until the appeal was completed. We disagree with our opponents when they contend that the county liability issue was independently appealable as a collateral order. As far back as Owen versus City of Independence in 1980, uh, this Court has stressed that local governments are not cloaked with, the, with, with common law or federal constitutional or statutory immunities, and those are the sorts of immunities that give rise to collateral order appealability in Section 1983 cases. Mr. McDuff, could the uh, district court judge have certified an appeal on this issue if it determined that judicial economy would be served by that? Yes, yes, he certainly could Was have. Was the district judge asked to do that? Here? No. No. And, and I, I mean, I, I guess my opponents can speak to this better than I, but I assume he was not asked because under existing Eleventh Circuit case law, uh, the Court of Appeals had discretionary pendant review, and there was no need to take the district judge's time with a request for certification. Uh, certainly, if it had been done, we wouldn't have this issue today. Um, and, and I do want to suggest that, that all well, the district judge had been asked and then and refused to certify under 1292B, could the Eleventh Circuit nonetheless exercise pendant appellate jurisdiction? Yes, I think so. Under the uh, under our view, yes, yeah. that's correct. Perhaps this is a question better reserved for your opponent. But when when the question of pendant appellate jurisdiction drawing in other parties came up for the district courts, Congress provided the solution in 1367, is it, in 1990. Why should we approve a a court-made solution to the problem on the appellate level? level? Because I think think the the situation in 1367 is very different, because there you're talking about parties who are not, who at least prior to 1367 were viewed by this court in the Finley case as not even being properly in federal court. And I think that's very different than a situation where, where everyone is properly in the federal case, and the only question is whether, whether the issue and the party should be in the district court or in the court of appeals. And I, it seems to me that it would be hard to imagine a, a, a construction of, of pendant appellate jurisdiction where the court of appeals could review pendant claims of the, of the party that had the right to bring the interlocutory appeal in the first place, but could not review claims brought by other parties in the same case, even though everyone was properly in federal court. So I think there are two very different situations between the one, the one uh, 
uh, encompassed by 1367 in the issue we have here. Mr. McDuff, it, it must be hard to argue a case where your opponent has not disagreed with you on the issue. <laughs> so you don't know what questions you're going to get, so I apologize for giving you this one. But we, we have held in, in the United States versus Stanley that there is no such thing as, uh, as, uh, as pendant uh, uh, appellate jurisdiction where the appeal, uh, the reason the case is before the appellate court is uh, Section 1292B, a certified question from, uh, from the lower court. Why should it be any different for uh Because I think 1292B is a, is, a, is a very different — well, let me answer this way. I think 1291 is a much broader statute and has been interpreted much more broadly than 1292B. 1292B is, is guided by very specific factors and has a very specific procedure where both the district judge and the court of appeals have to approve uh, an interlocutory appeal of an issue. Well, sure it does, but the basic reason why you assert pendant jurisdiction exists uh, under 1291 is exactly the same. What the heck, we're up here. We may as well uh, make a clean sweep of it and get rid of everything that needs to be decided. That same reason would apply in, in, in certified questions. But, but in a certified question, there is not a, a pre-existing appeal. In other words, the, the whole interlocutory appeal process starts anew with someone going to the district judge and saying, we want to take this issue up. Um, and I think that is a much narrower and much more focused situation than here, 1291, which is, is a broad jurisdictional statute and where an appeal already exists. Um, I mean, for example, you could say that 1292B now that it has been passed and enacted in use, precludes the need for collateral order jurisdiction under 1291, and that we no longer need to, to have uh, this whole notion of collateral orders under 1291 because you can achieve it under 1292B. But collateral order jurisdiction has not been jettisoned because, I think, because 1291 is a much broader statute. I wouldn't make that argument. The argument I would make is, would make is that you don't need pendant jurisdiction because to the extent it is really efficient to dispose of these other issues, you can resort to 1292B. But, but it, it's, it's, it seems Have to, a lower court ask for them to be resolved, but if, but if he doesn't, I'll let it, 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 seems, it seems to us to be rather strange to have the notion of under 1291 an appeal that already is validly before the Court of Appeals, that is, the, the the qualified immunity appeal in this case. Yet the Court of Appeals has to have the permission, in effect, of the district judge in order to consider any other issues in the case. Why isn't the answer to that, Abney, which was on the books when 1292B was passed? I'm sorry? Why isn't the answer, why isn't the answer to that, the holding in Abney, which, which was on the books when 1292B was, was enacted by Congress? We, I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've got three answers to Abney, and let me, if, if I can, spin them out very quickly. I mean, first of all, we believe Abney can be read as, as this Court exercising its supervisory jurisdiction over the Courts of Appeals, saying you should not consider pendant claims in criminal cases. Second, uh, the fallback from that is that Abney can be read as, as a, if it's read as a jurisdictional limitation, it applies only to criminal cases. In light of this Court's statements in, in several cases, that the final judgment rule should be enforced more strictly in criminal than civil cases. And then third, if Abney is read as jurisdictional and is read to cover civil and criminal cases, um, we believe it is in conflict with earlier decisions, such as the Eisen case and the Stude case, and that, and that Abney doesn't comport with the broad spirit of 1291, if necessary, should be overruled to that. Well, that, that would be a point to, to be considered, but it's also the case that we're, we're trying to, or, or if, if, our, if our object is to consider what Congress's understanding 
of the scope of 1291 and 1292B might be, the fact that Abney came first uh, before the enactment of 1292B would be a reason, whatever its soundness, uh, for assuming that Congress uh, intended the exclusive means of getting these related cases, uh, related okay. issues, to be 1292B. I, I, I'm sorry, I misunderstood your point earlier, and I see it now. Frankly, I don't think, I think it's fair to say that Congress has probably not considered this situation in the same way that it had not considered collateral order appeals when Cohen came out in 1949. Why should we make that assumption? Abney was there on the books. Congress enacted 1292B a couple of years later. I mean, I I, I would suppose the reasonable assumption is that Congress knew what we had been doing here. But, But Abney does not contain a very thorough discussion of this issue. I mean, all Abney says is that the defendant tried to bring up the pendant claim uh, this is a criminal case, and, you know, we don't want to encourage this sort of delay in criminal cases. And then there's a sentence at the end saying, therefore, the Court of Appeals had no jurisdiction. I do think it's, it, 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 the discussion was so limited that I don't think, as a practical matter, the members of Congress thinking about the final judgment rule and, and how 1291 is, is going on into the future were really thinking about that. And so I, I don't think that is an assumption that should guide this Court. Um, I, I think instead... The Court should look at, at this the way it has interpreted 1291 in the past, whether it's with the final judgment rule or other rules, in a very broad way, in a way that will achieve the purposes of, the final, of 1291, which are the limiting of piecemeal appeals and the promotion of the effective administration of justice. And, and, and another example I want to give is, is the final judgment merger rule, which, of course, has been around for a long time. We refer to this at, at page 19 of our supplemental brief. Under the final judgment rule as applied in, in Section 1291, once there is a, quote, final decision, end quote, that is a final judgment, the Court of Appeals has the authority to review all prior interlocutory decisions in the case, even if they could not normally be thought of as final decisions. That's the very purpose of a final judgment rule. It says you reserve all of your objections all the way down the line, and then you have an appeal from the final judgment. That's the very objective of a final judgment rule. But you didn't ask the Eleventh Circuit to do this. Your That's opponent correct. did. That's correct. And, and perhaps we ought to let you address the, the next question you have and, and ask your opponent, who was responsible for bringing the pendant claim, urging the Eleventh Circuit to take it, to continue with the 1292B, 1291 question. Very well. Although you are aiding and abetting him. <laughs> We were forced to. We were dragged along. Um, in terms of the merits, the Eleventh Circuit in this case never disputed the fact that the sheriff's authority to set law enforcement policy within his or her county is final and unreviewable. However, the court said it's not the county's policy that the sheriff is setting. The Court of Appeals never said for whom, for, for, which, for which unit of government the sheriff sets policy, but the only alternative, I think, would be the state, and that's what our opponents contend. But in looking at Alabama law, three factors stand out and, and together demonstrate, in our view. Mr. Mr. McDuff, uh, ordinarily we give great deference to the determination of a court of appeals that reviews cases from a state like Alabama regularly as to, as to what Alabama law is. You, you have a fairly heavy burden, I think, if you want to persuade us that the, that the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit was wrong on Alabama law. And Mr. Chief Justice, we don't, we don't say that they were wrong in saying uh, what Alabama law means as a matter of state law. 
But we are saying, given what Alabama law is and what the Eleventh Circuit said it is, it has a different result in terms of federal law than the Eleventh Circuit said it did. I mean, the question, the question of what does state law mean and, 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 and what are the power relationships in state law, that is a state law question. But given state law, the next question is, does that mean that as a matter of Section 1983, a particular official sets final policy? Well, you, you would agree, then, that whatever the Eleventh Circuit said, if the sheriff is enforcing Alabama state, if, if state law rather than the policy of the county law, that, that that would be binding. But you say the 11th Circuit was wrong. It was the consequences of that for the 1983 Act? No, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to say that. I think, it, I think if, where the 11th Circuit says that the sheriff is enforcing state policy rather than county policy, uh, we do dispute that, and I don't think they're entitled to any deference on that. I don't think that is, that is an interpretation of state law. That is a conclusion. I, I, would, I would think it would be preeminently a question of state law as to where the sheriff derives his authority, where does the policy come from that he enforces. I would think that would be preeminently a question of state law. I think we perceive that as a conclusion that the 11th Circuit drew from, from the givens of Alabama law. The fact that the sheriff is, has final and unreviewable authority within the county and not outside the county, that's a state law question. The 11th Circuit never disputed that. The fact that the sheriff is elected by the voters of the county, state law question, the 11th Circuit never disputed that. The fact that the sheriff's office is funded by the county commission, state law question, the 11th Circuit never disputed that. Where the dispute comes is, given those factors of state law, what does that mean in terms of federal law, in terms of Section 1983, uh, as to the question of for which body the sheriff sets policy? and which body is therefore going to be held liable for the actions of the sheriff. We think that's a federal law question, and the, and the 11th Circuit was just wrong on it. Um, the is it the, this sheriff has 11th Amendment immunity for suit against him in his official capacity. Well, that's what, that's what the district court actually said in, a, in an early order in this case when it dismissed the sheriff in, in his official capacity. We disagree with that. Um, and... and there's a footnote in Parker versus Williams in the 11th Circuit where they discuss this issue, and they say pretty much the same thing. They say if the sheriff is being sued as a representative of the state, he has 11th Amendment immunity. I thought there were holdings to that effect in the 11th Circuit. I thought there were holdings to that effect and not just uh, passing statements. The only one I'm aware of, is, and, and this is the one that pertains to Alabama, is the one in Parker versus Williams, and at the end of that footnote, the 11th Circuit says, now, to the extent the sheriff is being sued in his official capacity as a representative of the county, we don't need to pass on that because the county is a defendant in Parker versus Williams anyway. So although the 11th Circuit sort of held that he, he was protected by the 11th Amendment in his official capacity, they seem to have, a, have maybe an escape valve from that if, when, you, when one sues the sheriff in, in his or her official capacity, you're talking about a suit against the county and a suit against the sheriff as a representative of the county. Uh, if there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. McDuff. Uh, Mr. Wolfson? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the dispute between the parties on the merits is whether the sheriff of Chambers County acted with the authority of that county when he made the decisions that led to the alleged constitutional violations in this case. 
Now, in our view, the Court of Appeals erred because it looked to the label that was placed on the sheriff by the state rather than to the nature of the authority that he exercised. And the Court has made clear that the courts, when they determine who is a final policymaker for purposes of Section 1983, must examine all of the relevant legal materials, including all the positive law, as well as the custom and usage. And although Section 1983 was not intended to bring the states into federal court, nevertheless, that when a sheriff makes decisions and acts with the authority of the county, he may subject that county to liability under Section 1983. In our view, examining all the relevant legal materials leads to the conclusion that the district court properly denied summary judgment to the county, because it does appear that in the area of law enforcement, the sheriff of Chambers County exercises uh, county authority for which, and his decisions are county policies for which the county may be held liable. And we look to the. Are you, are you saying that that then the, the county can, uh, uh, if if the sheriff decides he wants to do one thing that he thinks the law requires, that, can the board of supervisors say no? You're wrong on that. My understanding is that the board of the county commissioners do not exercise supervisory authority over the sheriff. But and the court. Why do you say it's the policy of the board of supervisors that is carrying out? No, our, our we think that the the court of appeals and the respondents make this mistake. They confuse the power of the county commission with the authority of the county. And in our view, the sheriff, the situation in Chambers County is a familiar one of separation of powers, where the sheriff has the power over law enforcement, and he has the final policy-making authority in that area. The county commission has the power of the purse and various other powers that <coughs> county commissions have, and they have final policy-making authority in that area. And there are other there are other officers in Chambers County who are similar to the county sheriff. There's the county tax assessor. There's the county tax collector, the county coroner. All of these county officers are directly uh, accountable to the people, and they exercise county authority, even though they may not be accountable to the board of supervisors and in the in board of commissioners in, in a direct way. So I think on, on that point, the way that the, the error that the Court of Appeals made was saying that because the county commissioners could not exercise law enforcement authority. That also meant that the county could not. Be well, how would the com how would the county exercise law enforcement authority it's, other than by the commissioners or by the sheriff? Our view is it's the sheriff that exercises law enforcement authority for the county. He's elected by the people of the county for the purpose of enforcing the law within the county and apprehension of suspects within the county. And we look for a similar analysis, actually, we look to the court's decision in Proprotnik and also in Pembor. And in Proprotnik in particular, the court seemed to indicate that it understood that separation of powers was quite common in local governments. And in that case, the court noted that the county's, the city of St. Louis's rather personnel policies could be exercised either by the mayor and board of aldermen or by an independent civil service commission or by the two acting in some combination. Couldn't, couldn't state officers also be, uh, uh, be elected by uh, subunits of the state? I would say this. There, I mean, what the we fact that he's elected by the county doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily show that he's not a state officer. He's, I would say this, these factors. First, he's elected by the county for the purpose of exercising authority within the county. So he's not like a, a, state, a state legislator who was sent to uh, the state capital. So he is, he is exercising final policy-making authority within the county. Now, on the other side of the coin, he does not follow any uh, dictates of a higher authority, be it within the county or within the state. He doesn't look to guidelines issued by the Attorney General of Alabama or by... Do, do, doesn't the, don't the Alabama statutes 
say something about what the sheriff shall do? Yes, the Alabama statutes say that the sheriff essentially has the power to exercise law enforcement in the county. And also... Well, do they say nothing more than that? Well, they say that they say a number of things. They say that our reading of them is they say no other sheriff from outside the county has any power. And there's no indication that the sheriff follows, that the sheriff looks to anybody in Montgomery. In other words, he's not within a hierarchical command structure set up by the state. He really is, he has the final say over law enforcement authority within the county. Well, so, I mean, so, so does a prosecutor. Uh, well, I mean, a, a actually, federal prosecutor uh, doesn't uh, Well, federal prosecutors are subject, of course, to the command structure of the Department of Justice, I might refer to it, and as I might refer to it, and actually in Alabama, county Smilingly, <laughs> uh, uh, as, I mean, I, I, I assume they, they have an enormous amount of independence. Well, but as a, as a, as a legal matter, the governor of Alabama cannot remove a sheriff of, the, of Chambers County. Now, the, the sheriff of Chambers County may be removed by the voters at the next election if he doesn't exercise law enforcement authority properly, or if he, indeed, if he takes an unconstitutional action, which the result is to visit liability on the county, the voters may disagree with that. And in Owen versus City of Independence, the court said that's, a, that's an appropriate reason to visit liability on the county and that uh, county policymakers should consider that. But there is, there is nobody in Montgomery who is watching over the sheriff except a very limited power, the, the power of impeachment, <coughs> which is a, a criminal proceeding. Uh, where Wilson, uh, you, you relied on three factors, the election, his salary is paid by the county, the expenses of his office are paid by the salary, uh, by, the, by the county. Is there anything more that's needed as you view the case, to impose 1983 liability? I think those three factors are enough if there is nothing on the other side of the coin that says that he must follow higher authority from the state. There are county, there are some forms of county structures, of state governing structures, where people are elected by the county, but where they implement state policy under detailed procedures and guidelines. In Alabama, for example, county, the county prosecutors are subject to written circulars of instruction, as I understand it, from the Attorney General. So even though they may be elected from the county, they, they are constrained in the exercise of their discretion, as I understand it, by, by higher authority. But that, that is, as I understand it, completely absent in this case. And there is essentially nobody to review what the Sheriff of Chambers County Mr. does. Mr. Wolfson, would um, the Sheriff be considered a state officer for purposes of 11th Amendment immunity? Uh, we agree with what the petitioner said on that point. We recognize that there are 11th Circuit decisions uh, at least indicating that sheriffs sued in their official capacity are entitled to 11th Amendment immunity. And, and, and normally you would expect then that on this question of um, whether the sheriff is a state or county officer for purposes of this suit, that the result would be the same. I would, I would, I think that decision was incorrect by the district court. I would rely on Brandon versus Holt for that, where the court said suing a, suing a governmental official in his or her official capacity is really a pleading device that brings in the uh, entity that he or she acts for. I think when the sheriff was sued in his official capacity, the question is, well, the question was, in which capacity? And that, in some sense, is, is the question that is before the court today. Mr. And Wilson, you're, you're assuming a dichotomy. Is, is it necessarily true that the officer is either a state officer 
or if not a state officer, a county officer which renders the county liable for him under 1983. Might there not be many officers who are, who are not state officers, but nonetheless for which the county is not responsible under 1983 because it cannot control them? Well, uh, counties, as I, as, as I tried to make the point earlier, here it's not that the county can control the sheriff. The county is the electorate. But not, not body the corporate that's being sued under 1983. And that's the whole assumption of 1983, isn't it, that you're dealing with something like a corporation? Actually, Alabama law, as I understand it, refers to the county as the body corporate and politic, not the county commission. But, but the party here is the Chambers County Commission. I, I recognize that. I would make two points in response to that. First of all, we think that when... The petitioners sued the sheriff in his official capacity. That was, in effect, naming the county as a party defendant. And it's true he was dismissed, but I think Brandon versus Holt compels that conclusion. Second, as we understand it, the reason why the Chambers County Commission was sued was they, ha- they have the power of the purse. And I, I would have to uh, defer to the other, pe- the other people who will be arguing, but my understanding is that the county is probably not a necessary and indispensable party under federal rule of civil procedure. Well, but under your theory, it, it's the county and as an entity rather than the county commission that would be sustainable for liability. And yet the party here is the county commission. The, the county was sued when the sheriff was named in his official capacity. Is, is Thank you. Uh, Mr. Uh, Smith. Will- Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Uh, Our position on the merits in this case is that a county government cannot be held liable under Section 1983 based on the actions of an official like the sheriff in Chambers County, who is properly treated as a state official both under state law and for purposes of the 11th Amendment, and who operates entirely free of control by the county commission. why Why does the county commission have to have control? For example, let's assume the county commission has made ultimate law enforcement policy for the county. The county would be responsible for them. If the county commissioners make law enforcement policy, the county is clearly responsible for any actions by the county commission because the county commission is the governing body of the corporation, which is right. So if the county. repository of discretionary authority over law enforcement happens to be in a sheriff rather than the county commission, why wouldn't the county, for the same reasons, be liable? It is conceivable that state law could establish an independent, autonomous municipal official who has authority to make policy for the municipal corporation. This is, that no, is not if, this If case. they do, I take it your answer is yes, the county would be responsible. Absolutely. If state okay. law said that, that sheriffs are county officials with policymaking authority over law enforcement. So the, so the issue, is, as you see it, is not whether there happens to be a county commission between the county, quote, unquote, and the sheriff. The, the issue is whether the sheriff is, in fact, a county official. Well, I think there's two levels of inquiry, Your Honor. I think first you have to look at whether or not the sheriff is a state official or a county official. Mm-hmm. At that point, I think if you would determine he's a state official, it is conceivable that there might be some areas of his activity where he works under the control and effectively is deputized to the county commission. And that's why we go on to look at control after we look at state law in our brief. But I agree with you. The primary issue in this case is, is the sheriff a state official or a county official? And every indication here is that he's a state official. This court well, said not, the issue is not, not every indication. I mean, he's elected by the county. He's paid by the county. His expenses are paid by the county. His jurisdictional is countywide. I mean, those are indications that he's a county official. Well, y- y- those things also apply equally to any number of people. Of 1983, at least. The, to begin with, Your Honor, the state constitution expressly designates him a state official. He has 
the same removal procedures apply to him that only apply to state officials and not to any municipal Mr. officials. Smith, can I ask you a question? Sure. Supposing the, the, the policy at issue is that in this county, all raids of nightclubs shall be conduct, conducted by teams of eight SWAT officers dressed in a certain way and carrying certain arms. That's the way the sheriff says we will cut, conduct these raids. Who in the state can tell him to conduct them differently? The state legislature to begin with. If it's I mean, illegal, they'd have to pass a statute to tell him not to conduct this. If that policy were illegal, he could be impeached. Well, I'm by not the saying it's legal or illegal, but the question is, who is the final person to decide whether that policy shall be carried out in this particular county? If he's at, if under he, the present state of the law, without any new legislation. With respect to law enforcement decisions that are discretionary and are wholly legal, he has discretion to make that decision himself. He could announce that policy, and it, he would be the final authority on the effectuation of that policy within the geographic boundaries of that county. Just as any number of other state officials in Alabama and everywhere else have a certain amount of discretion to set policy for the state but within certain confines counties? of the law. For particular counties? Circuit judges in Alabama, district attorneys in Alabama, all unquestionably state officials are elected locally. They are, their quarters and their equipment are all provided through the county commission. Yes, they, and they make rules for the county that are different from the rules in other parts of the state? Every time a prosecutor makes judgments about which crimes he's going to prosecute and not prosecute, within the bounds of the law, he's essentially setting some kind of policy. And he's clearly a state official doing that within the confines of Chambers County. So you're saying that the sheriff is a state official who sets the uh, law enforcement policy within the particular county? I'm not saying that. That's clearly what the law in Alabama is. It's the, uh, he has, I, sh I should note, a sheriff has all of the absolute immunity that is accorded to state executive branch officials in Alabama, not accorded to any municipal officials. The removal authority, and there's a fair amount of supervision as well at the state level. The governor What's can the direct him to conduct investigation. level of the particular policy involved in this case? The, the supervision of this, of this particular policy, it could occur in the sense that the governor could direct him to investigate the Capri Club, could also re, uh, demand a report on the, on the activities that he has been conducting with respect to the Capri Club, and if he didn't get a, a report that was accurate, he could, that would be an impeachable offense as well. So there is I'm some degree of... To, to use nine officers instead of eight? As I, as I indicated before, if it's, a, if it's a discretionary decision between two legal options about how to conduct a raid, the That's state has made a decision to allow that some is discretion. The there, excuse me, the final authority on that is the sheriff. Yes, Your Honor. There's no question about that. And that's a matter of policy. It is a matter of policy that he, he sets for the state at the local level. I think the other thing you have to focus on here is the 11th Amendment. This court just last month or, or two months ago said, we determine whether or not a particular branch of government or office of government is covered by the 11th Amendment by looking at who would pay the judgment. That was in the Hess case involving the Port Authority up in New York. That is precisely the test that the 11th Circuit in a number of decisions in a row has, held, has applied in deciding whether or not the sheriff in Alabama is protected from suits in his official capacity under the 11th Amendment. And it is consistently held that the state would pay the judgment precisely because the state has always treated sheriffs as state officials. If the sheriff ran over somebody in the course of getting to, uh, to some investigation, who would pay that judgment? If he was sued under state law, there would be absolute immunity because he has a state immunity as a state official. If he was there's sued, no tort claims thing. And there's a there's a board you can go to a board of adjustment for discretionary relief, but, but there's absolute but immunity. Is, is there any? You said if he sued uh, under state law, is there any other way for him to be sued? Well, there might be a suit. I, I, I guess if it was a negligence claim, he couldn't be sued under 1983. But so that that would be the only way, Your Honor. You're, you're right. I, I meant judgments in general, not 1983. Yes. One of the concerns. 
it was we don't know perhaps everything that there is to know about this is because the district judge was cut off. And since you are the person responsible for bringing this to the Eleventh Circuit, I would like to step back and talk about the legitimacy of bringing the county up before the Eleventh Circuit. And first, do you agree that you could have asked the district judge to certify this question of the county's responsibility under 1292B? Certainly, you can always ask the district judge to do that. I think the chances that it would have been granted in this case, we can all speculate about. If that's so, aren't you just doing an end run around what Congress wanted? Congress deliberately put in place a two-level discretion. First, the district judge has to say this interlocutory order is appealable. Then the Court of Appeals has to agree. By this pendant party um, appellate jurisdiction, aren't you just just uh, uh, demolishing that two-level discretion that Congress put in place in 1292B? You could do an end run around 1292B every time. 1292B applies to the question of whether or not the district court proceedings should be, should be uh, suspended and an appeal should go up to the Court of Appeals. We're talking about a situation where that is already occurring as a matter of right under the collateral order. For another party. For another party on a related issue. So to that extent, you do an end run around 12. Anytime you have a legitimate interlocutory appeal of any party in the case, then it's totally discretionary with the Court of Appeals, and it doesn't matter what the district court thinks. But that's been the rule that this court has applied in any number of contexts. Whenever there's been uh, appellate jurisdiction to reach a particular order, the, the routine rule of this court the, has been What to is say the routine rule of this court with respect to pendant party appellate jurisdiction? Well, uh, you've given the example of, of um, Eisen, which involved the same parties. Right. What is the routine practice with bringing up a party who could never have gotten there on any question on her own and pending that party without consulting the district judge? District judge here said, I'm not finished. I'm going to revisit this before the case goes to the jury. And even so, it goes up on your theory that it's all discretionary with the Court of Appeals. Your Honor, I'm not aware of any case dealing one way or the other with the question of whether the pendant discretionary jurisdiction of an appellate court can can include a a claim brought involving a separate party. If if you're not aware, then it can't be the routine practice of this court to to sanction pendant appellate jurisdiction over a party who could not be there otherwise. I would, I would though, Your Honor, point the Court to, a, to an area of the law that was not discussed in either of the supplemental briefs, and that is the appeals that used to come to this Court under Section 1252, which until 1988 was a statute that authorized direct appeals to this Court from any federal decision or order, interlocutory or otherwise, holding a federal statute unconstitutional. And the doctrine that was applied by this Court for decades was that such an appeal not only brings up the issue of the constitutionality of that federal statute, but brings the entire case up to this Court. And this Court then said that it had discretion in those appeals to decide any issue that was present in that whole case, as the the doctrine read. And, for example, in the Williams versus Zabaraz case in 1980, this Court dealt with an appeal from a federal district court decision holding the Hyde Amendment unconstitutional. And also, in that same case, the Court had held various state statutes unconstitutional. And in in this Court, the Court held that the district court didn't have jurisdiction to even discuss the Hyde Amendment, but then said the whole case is here, so we're going to go ahead and proceed to decide the merits of the constitutionality of these state statutes, issues which were not within the scope of the statute that brought the case up to this Court. So there is — Nonetheless — The case was was before the Court, not just an issue. 
the whole case was before the court. There hadn't been a final judgment. The case was done with. And all that that, all that, that doctrine uh, uh, said was that when you have the whole case here, you're not limited to deciding that single federal question. It seems to me quite a different. With respect, Your Honor, the doctrine was that on an appeal from an interlocutory order with respect to one issue, which is what the statute authorized, the whole case comes with it and there's discretion to go beyond it, which is all we're saying here, that when there's a, a, an appeal of one issue in the case, Courts of appeals, just as they do in preliminary injunction appeals, just as they do in mandamus situations as the court held in Schlagenhoff, just as they do used to under 1252 in appeals here, ought to have some discretion to decide issues that are clearly presented in the record of the case. Both parties are telling them it's appropriate to decide it. And it just doesn't make any practical sense to tell the courts of appeals that they have to remand the case to the district court knowing that what they're doing is condemning the district court to carry on perhaps years of proceedings that are totally unnecessary. You could have asked legal error. Could you have asked for a separate judgment under 54B? <clears throat> well, Your Honor, um, the county commission didn't actually have a, a clear ruling yet on the Monell issue, but if we had had a clear ruling against us on the Monell issue, then there wouldn't have been a judgment to enter because we would have the, the claim would have still been pending against the county, so there wouldn't have been anything to certify under. The uh, district judge said he wasn't finished with it. He said, it, I'm not making a final ruling. I'm going to revisit this question. That's, that's correct, so It was Your Honor. not only interlocutory within the case itself, but the district judge said, I'm not even finished with this single issue. Although, Your Honor, the, the, the issue is clearly one purely of law, and the district court showed some confusion about that at one point, saying that there was enough to get the trial on the fact well, the, the Yes, but that's the point. You see, it isn't, it, it isn't even final even as we sit here. You, you can't, I, I don't think you could have received an order under 54B. No, I, that's, that's correct, Your Honor. There, was not, there clearly was not a final determination in the district court on this Monell issue. But the Court of Appeals saw that this issue was presented in the record of the case. It's a pure issue of law that would, if resolved, allow the county to be entirely uh, exonerated in this case. And it said there's no reason why we shouldn't go ahead and reach this pure legal question now that the case is up here and help to expedite the processing of this case, something that that made eminent practical sense in the context of this case. Uh, Even if the district judge had said, I think, and I'm not going to change my mind, that this county is is um, liable under 12, uh, under 1983, and now I'm going to hear the case on the merits. You couldn't have gotten a 54B order even then. That's absolutely right, because all he would have been saying is that the claim is legally valid when we have to go ahead and try it. So there wouldn't have been anything to get a 54B on. That's correct. You might have gotten a 1292B. At least that would have been technically Conceivably, although then if, if we were talking about a separate appeal that would have stopped the, the case in its tracks, there would have been all sorts of issues of practicality there. Here the case was already stopped in its tracks. The county is sitting there, and the individual defendants are going up on appeal. There's clearly not going to be any sort of proceedings in the meantime. And it's, it's, it's simply asked the, the Court of Appeals to take the opportunity that was presented by this uh, separate appeal to resolve the additional case issue. of 1292B, because it's a different party, and it, it, isn't it really... Well, it could be, Your Honor. In this case, the 1292B was uh, designed to provide a solution. Although 1292B also has, has a, you know, a set of standards that have to be met that might well, not be sure. met here. You know, you, when, when you have a different... That, that argues to the contrary, it seems to me, because you're bypassing those standards. The other thing, of course, here is the, uh, the, the county defendant was faced with case law in the 11th Circuit, which made it perfectly clear that this was a perfectly appropriate thing to do. So I don't think it's fair to sort of criticize the litigation decision which was made to go ahead and... Well, we're not criticizing. It's a question of power. And, I mean, either sure. they're right or they're wrong, and we have to decide it that Sure, way. I understand that. But it seems to me that, that there's no reason to make people go through the hoops of 1292B when there's already a, the case going up to the Court of Appeals on a related issue. 
At that point, it shouldn't be up to the district court to decide what the Court of Appeals' scope of review should be. It should be the Court of Appeals should have the traditional the statute authority. It says it's an appeal from a decision, as in the Stanley case, it's an appeal from an order. And the, deci- the decision describes a particular aspect of the case, namely they decided there's no, no immunity here. Sure, but that's exactly what 1292A says, and this Court has said for decades that when you get a preliminary injunction appeal, you can go ahead and resolve the whole case, because it, it sometimes makes more sense to do that. The Youngstown Sheet and Tube case was an, an appeal of a preliminary injunction, but the case was resolved on the merits, because the Court has this equitable discretion to go ahead and broaden its review beyond the particular order that... Well, maybe, maybe uh, that applies only if the issues are necessarily intertwined or antecedent. I'm not sure there's any broad, dependent jurisdiction at the appellate level for an issue that is neither intertwined nor antecedent. And I think the county sheriff issue is not in this case. It's an independent issue. In, in nearly every... And I think you have to look at the statutes and see whether Congress has uh, allowed the Court of Appeals to exercise pendant jurisdiction. I frankly don't see that authority, but... Uh, well, I guess I would say that you should look at the, at the traditional way that the scope of review has been treated differently from the ability to appeal. We're talking about how broadly the Court of Appeals can rule once the case is up to the Court of Appeals. And there's been a, a lot of play in those joints for many, many years, and Congress has never done anything to restrict The courts of appeal pretty split on this issue, actually? Well, they've, they've become more split after Abney and, and, and begun to move in that direction. But I think, you know, one thing the Court might want to consider in looking at this is that the large number of decisions of the courts of appeals which have continued to try to find some way to broaden their scope of review in these situations because of the really serious practical considerations that come into play when you're a court of appeals judge sitting there knowing that... When Congress addressed this issue, it decided it wasn't going to leave it all to the court of appeals. It could have done that. It could have done, just had that one discretionary level. But it deliberately said, we want the district judge to say... If that judge thinks that this is going to expedite the case, an immediate appeal, if the district judge says no, then under 1292B you can't do it. Now you presented this as this is a routine matter, but I think now you recognize that it isn't routine, that we have never authorized pendant party appellate jurisdiction. Uh, Your Honor, I, Congress certainly hasn't. I think if you think about it, though, the, the distinction between pendant claims and pendant parties is much murkier and much less clear in the appellate context than it is at the district court level, because the county was going to be a party to this appeal, at least as an appellee, no matter what. And the, ca- the claim of the county, the, the plaintiffs against the county, was going to get up to the Court of Appeals sooner or later, no matter what. So Later, not was, sooner, because the district judge wasn't finished with it. Right. So it's a question of timing rather than whether or not this is a dispute that will ever get into the federal courts, which is what the court was faced with in Finley, talking about pendant parties uh, at the district court level. So I, I think taking into account that, that, that that's a quite a different set of circumstances and taking into account the discretion that has traditionally been read into statutes as specific as the one we're dealing with here, indeed more specific, like 1292A, that there's no reason to think that we're, when, when we're piggybacking on top of a, a separate appeal, that we're doing anything that Congress would have thought was strange or that was not left to this Court to authorize as an appropriate scope of review issue. It's not a question of new appeals. It's a question of whether or not the Court of Appeals can go beyond one order to resolve other matters while the, once the, the district court proceedings have been stopped in their tracks and the case has been brought up. 
Are there cases where it might be appropriate to piggyback, but where a certification could not be made under uh, 1292B? Well, I think there may be issues where the district court would appropriately say this is not sufficiently serious or important to would appropriately say. Excuse me? Would appropriately say? I certainly think that could be true, but at the same time, the... Uh, and I should think that would be a good reason for saying they shouldn't get up at that point. Well, Your Honor, the, the, once the case is going up with another appeal, though, there may be lots of practical reasons why the Court of Appeals would want to reach it, even though it might not satisfy the 1292B standards. But why, why is the Court of Appeals' interest significantly different from the district court's interest here? I, mean, well, I, I think there's just a different standard that should be applied once you're talking about not creating an appeal but simply what issues ought to be decided now that we've gone to the trouble of having the proceeding go to the Court of Appeals. And uh, at that point, the Court of Appeals is just deciding what state the case should be in when we send it back, what we should tell the district court to do on remand. It's just a whole different set of practical concerns that would, I would think, allow a broader, freer hand. Mr. Smith, you, you've mentioned 1292A uh, uh, several times. I'm, I'm, I was under the same impression that uh, Justice O'Connor is, that the cases that allow other issues to be brought up under 1290, uh, 1291A uh, allow to be brought up only those issues that are necessarily involved in the, in the issue that comes before the court. For example, in every, in every injunction case, there's the question of, of the probability of success on the merits. Uh, and therefore, you have to take that up in, in, uh, in determining whether the injunction was probably issued, properly issued. Are you aware of any cases that do not establish that as a criterion? We're bringing up a, a, a pendant issue? Well, two, two points, Your Honor. Clearly, there's a lot of cases which say you can go beyond looking at probability and discretion and just go ahead and decide the merits. Yeah, but that, that, but to some extent, that merits question is, is necessarily reached, to some extent at right. least. Now, there are cases, I'm not aware of a case in this court, but there certainly are cases, Judge Friendly's decision in the Sems Motor case cited in our brief, where there are just essentially two different issues. There was a question of whether or not the, the, there ought to be a state uh, entered in one delegation, and then there was a preliminary injunction, and Judge Friendly said, I'm going to go ahead and decide whether the district court should have entered a stay, and that doesn't affect the propriety of the preliminary injunction. I think these two issues ought to be decided um, that was certainly his view of, of how it ought to be. cases under 1292A where a party who could not have appealed is allowed to appeal because another party appealed? I, I have not found such a case, Your Honor. Which is, which is what we have here. Yes, Your Honor. And, and if you think that, that the, part, the distinction in parties makes a big difference, then that, that is clearly a difference. I, as I was saying, I think that in an appellate context where you already have this, the second party coming up as an appellee and where uh, why, would the, why would the county be an appellee? Just because it's a party to the litigation? Just because it's a party. And conceivably, it could be in there arguing that the, against the sheriff, trying to maintain, you know, so that yeah. the co-defendant might be kept in the case. I mean, there could be a conflict there. Um, that certainly will arise in some circumstances as well, where co-defendants are against each other on appeal. Mr. Smith, one of the reasons why the district it could have made a difference, you said it's just a pure question of law. Yeah. But custom and usage counts also under 1983. And... Perhaps when the district judge said, I'm going to revisit this, my decision on it is not final, that's what he had in mind. That's what Judge Varner had in mind, that he wanted to look at not only what was formerly in the Alabama statute. For example, do we know whether, could the county commission have said, this kind of raid is something we don't like, so we are telling this sheriff that we're simply not going to pay for it. We're going to engage in this kind of raid, we're not going to pay for it. Well, Your Honor, it's clear as a matter of law that they could not do that, that, that they are not authorized by state law to have any opinion whatever about law enforcement policy. And I don't think that's disputed here. So if such a thing occurred, it would be a violation of law by the county commission. There may be times when you need some facts about custom and usage, but this is not such a case. 
Here the question is, what position does the sheriff occupy in the state hierarchy, and should he be properly viewed as a state official or as a county official? So when they, don't they audit his books or they pay for his office, don't they have to audit his books? They have to, they have to pay the money that goes to pay his salary, which is set by state law, and sufficient supplies and material to let him carry out his office, and they have to give him a jail and an office to work in. Just as Did they exercise supervision at least to the extent of making sure that, that he's not uh, dining at the fanciest restaurant in town and charging the county for that? Don't they go over his... There can be litigation over this issue. What happens is that the county commission appropriates a certain amount of money, and if the sheriff thinks it's un, it doesn't satisfy the state statutory standard of reasonable necessity, then the sheriff sues the county commission. I, so, I mean, does anybody look at his books to see how he is spending the county's money, and who is that somebody who does that? Um, I, I think there probably is. I, I, I'm sort of getting into speculation here, Your Honor. There may well be some county executive official who could determine whether or not he's actually stealing money from the county and not spending it on appropriate use or something Only like stealing that. but not acting unlawfully in violation of the Constitution. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. And not spending the county's money in violation of the Constitution. Well, it, so, if there is a county body, somebody commissioned by the county commission to audit the books, that's, that, that's my, my question is maybe yes, maybe no, but the district judge didn't have a chance to explore any of that because you took it right up to the Court of Appeals. Well, Your Honor, the, the, the question of whether or not the sheriff is a county official in this case is so clear as a matter of law that, that it's hard for me to understand how anybody could suggest that, that the, the reason to reverse here would be that it was preliminary. This case, the guy's clearly covered by the 11th Amendment under the standard that this court announced just two, two months ago. And uh, the, st the state constitution... Clear we should have denied cert, I suppose. Excuse me, Your Honor? It's so clear we should have denied cert, I suppose. <laughs> Your Honor, well, I can understand how at first blush the, uh, the suggestion that maybe a county sheriff is not a county official might have struck the court as odd. But it, it, in fact, if you view it in historical context... The, uh, the, the, there's really little doubt that the, the state has taken responsibility for this official. I have a list, say, here of, of there are two things. As you see the case on the merits, uh, it's yes. always possible we'll get to the merits. If we do, uh, uh, the, as you see it, he's either a state official or a county official. If he's a state official, we, you win. If he's a county official, do you lose? Or is there some other theory distinguishing between county commissioners and county something else and county this and county that? As I understand your argument, if he's a county official, you lose. If he's a state official, you win. Do I have that right? If he's a county official, I think it's per perfectly clear he's a county policymaker on law enforcement. If he's a state then, official... And then, if he's a county official, the county commissioners have to pay. I think that's correct. Okay. If state law held that, that was... All right, and that's how you're arguing. If he's a state official, I think the court ought to, ought to look... State like official, you win. I've got that. I just want to be sure it's a yes or no. <laughs> Well, to be, fair, to be fair, Your Honor, I think it's conceivable that you could have a state official who, would, in some of his functions, is deputized to perform municipal functions. Of course. I accept that. Now what I have here is I have two lists, and I want to be sure they're complete. The main thing that I have in arguing for is it being a county official is he's elected by the county, salaries paid, the expenses of the office are paid, and his jurisdiction is primarily county. Okay. I have in favor of his being a state, that there's documents somewhere in the state that say he's a state, like a statute or something, or a regulation. State constitution. Yeah, right. And, and that's important. I don't mean to trivialize it. I, that is important. And, and the second thing is he could be impeached by, he could be impeached by uh, 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 the state level. And the third thing is there's some 11th Amendment cases. 
I want you to do add, I'm asking because I want to know, is there a fourth, fifth, and sixth thing I should put on that list? In, in many of his functions, he is supervised by the state officials. The governor can require reports, can require investigations. Good. The circuit judges supervise him. The district attorneys supervise him. The State Department of Corrections supervises him. The county commission, by law, has no authority to supervise him, which also indicates that he's a state official. He also has the immunities that are given to state officials under state law, but not given to municipal officials under state law. I think ultimately, though, the court ought to look at the 11th Amendment ruling more than anything else, because the court said in will that the distinction between state defendants and municipal defendants is coterminous with the 11th Amendment, and we're going to not assume that the Congress meant to overrule any aspect of 11th Amendment immunity. Mr. Chief, may, may I just go back to one point? You were speaking of the supervisory authority of state officials. I take it you agree that there is no supervisory authority that would require the sheriff to get the approval of a state official before setting the kind of policy for the county that is alleged to have been uh, uh, in effect here. That's he correct. said in Justice Stevens's question, you know, if we're going to have raids in this way with people dressed like this without prior notice and so on, there's no one in the state that he has to, at the, in the, at the level of state government, whose approval he has to get in, in order to implement that policy. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. I think the state of Alabama, for its good and sufficient reasons, has decided there needs to be a certain amount of discretion over law enforcement functions at the local level because crime is local, and that's where we're going to have it enforced. I am puzzled by your answer to Justice Breyer's questions, uh, uh, which, which seem to accept the dichotomy between state official and county official. Aren't there various – it doesn't depend on what you mean by county official. Aren't there county officials who are, who are accountable to and within the control of – the uh, the uh, the organ of the of the county commissioners and other officials who could be called county officials who have countywide jurisdiction elected by the voters of the county uh, couldn't they be county officials without necessarily being within the control and therefore uh, responsibility of the county commissioners? Your Honor, I think it, it depends on what you mean by county officials. When I answered that, I was assuming that he meant by county officials people who are designated by, by state law as the chief person of a particular area of function in, for that county as a municipal corporation. For think, the corporation. I think it is possible for state law to set up autonomous executive officials who speak for a particular municipal corporation if the law very clearly does that. The control issue really comes in when it's murkier and where somebody's making the claim, well, sure, they call him a state official in, state, in the state constitution, but in reality, he's more of a local official. Look, he's elected locally. And then I say, at that point, you really ought to look at whether or not he's controlled by the governing body of the county. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. McDuff, you have four minutes remaining. First, um, let me respond to uh, Justice Ginsburg's question about, about whether there are any cases with pendant parties bringing, bringing uh, otherwise non-appealable claims along with an appealable claim. And we cite in our brief the 1954 case in Chicago and Rock Island Railroad versus Stude, where it was a cross-appeal that the Supreme Court said should be, was properly considered by the Court of Appeals, along with the originally appealable appeal by the cross-party. Same now, people. Same, same people. Same people. Already there anyway. I'm, I was asking if there was any case any authority from this court where you bring up somebody who could not have gotten there as a petitioner respondent and lift that person uh, who the district judge isn't finished with and say, I can piggyback on this other appeal. Yeah, I'm, I'm not aware of any case in this court where there was a third party who came in. But I, I think the point is well made by Stu that, that the, the, the non-appealable claim 
was, was brought there and considered by a party that did not have an original right to appeal at that point. And even though it was a cross-appeal, we still see that as a sort of pendant party thing um, that allows non-appealable claims to be brought by parties who otherwise don't have the right to appeal. Um, and also, at, in, in terms of the Court of Appeals, at page 12 and 13 of our supplemental brief, we cite some Court of Appeals cases. Uh, and, of course, there's some Eleventh Circuit cases where, where a third party came in. Well, one party. can understand why Courts of Appeals would be biased in favor of their discretion to the exclusion of the district court. Well, that, 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 that may certainly be the case. Or, or looking at the case, once they have it, they see that the, the litigation can be advanced by taking and, and reviewing additional issues. On the Eleventh Amendment point... Or indeed, why, why we would be biased in that direction as well. Justice <laughs> Scalia, um, you asked me earlier about the Eleventh Amendment case law. Um, uh, in, I, I mean, the Eleventh Circuit case law regarding the Eleventh Amendment uh, status of a sheriff's suit in official capacity. There are some Alabama cases after Parker versus Williams that repeat the point in the Parker versus Williams footnote saying that sheriffs should be considered uh, state officials for purpose of 11th Amendment immunity. And our view is that they are all a misconstruction of what Parker versus Williams said. And let me say, there's nothing in the record here, and there's nothing in the Alabama statutes about who will pay a judgment against the sheriff under Section 1983. There's nothing to say it's going to be paid by the state. Um, our view, and this is from, a, I mean, our experience from outside the record is it's actually paid by an insurance policy from an association of county commissions. But at any rate, uh, the 11th Amendment issue we do not think has been properly determined by any court. We think the 11th Circuit's been wrong. And if it becomes necessary in this case, we, we will certainly challenge it. Um, Who buys the sheriff's patrol cars? The county commission. Now, in, in terms of the label, we, we, my opponent says that, that Alabama law labels the sheriff as a state official. The only label they're talking about is Section 112 of the Constitution that says, quote, the executive department shall consist of a governor and some other officers and a sheriff for each county, end quote. That doesn't answer the question posed by Section 1983 of for which body, for which governmental unit does the sheriff set policy? Even if, even if Alabama passed a statute and said the sheriff sets law enforcement policy for the state, that label wouldn't answer the question either. You have to look at the functions as set up by state law. And if usage is, is any different from state law, you look at that. In terms of labels, there are several statutes that refer to the sheriff as a county officer. One of them is, is cited in... Thank you. Mr. McDuff, the case is submitted.